If you're a guest with us, my name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill as well, and it's my privilege this morning to serve us in the teaching of God's Word. And I don't know how many of you know this, but to, to better equip and, and help whoever is serving us in the preaching of God's Word on Sunday morning, myself or, or even one of the other guys, if it's not me, every single week, uh, different staff and elders meet on Wednesday or, or Thursday now to go over the text for Sunday morning. We read the text together, we pray over the text together, and then we talk about it. And we look at the context, we look at the varied applications, we, we each speak to one another and encourage one another and, and serve whoever it is that is leading on Sunday morning in helping to understand the text. And there's so much that comes out in those meetings that has made its way into sermons. I mean, you don't even know that it's happening, but there are various helps and supports coming in those meetings that, that help open up different aspects of the text that, that ultimately serve us as a body better because we do it. And so this Thursday, we got together as, as normal and read the text and began to talk about it and, and, and read it and begin to dive into varied ways of applying the text and understanding it. And, and when we were done, probably about an hour, hour and a half later, everyone looked at me at I was kind of at the end of the table, and everybody looked at me and said, well, good luck. We, we had pretty much determined in that hour and a half that our story this morning needs a good four to five weeks, and we had come up with a good four to five weeks worth of sermons. So by the time I left my house this morning, I'm on my third sermon for this morning, trying to figure out exactly how we're going to look at this text and what God has for us this morning. So if you've got your Bible... Open it up to the gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 14. We indeed have a, a feast in front of us this morning. And so we want to do something maybe a little bit different. We, we haven't done this in a long time. This morning as we prepare to, to see what God has for us in his word, let's read God's word together. And as we do it, how about we do this? Why don't you stand up? This is the way the the church would have always approached God's word and the reading and teaching of it publicly. They would have stood whenever the Lord's word was read. So Mark chapter 14, we're going to pick up the story in verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to, again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word, the opportunity we have now to not sit over your word to pick it apart, but to submit ourselves to your word and allow your word by your Holy Spirit to expose our hearts the realities of what lies within us. Lord, this morning we ask that you would help us to see ourselves more accurately and in the same way, Lord, to see your Son more gloriously. 
And we ask that you would do this this morning for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. When we pick up the story here this morning, it's already, if you remember and you've been with us at all, it's already been a long night for Peter. Just earlier in, in the gospel according to Mark, in, in chapter 14, which we've seemed to have been in for at least a good six months, it's the longest chapter in Mark, but earlier in this same night, Jesus told his disciples in verse 30, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. This very night, the night that we have prayed together, the night that we have eaten together, the night that we have sang hymns together, I know the the depths of the affection you have for me, how much you like me, that you've been with me now for three years, but in just a few short hours, all of you, Jesus said, are going to abandon me. Your faith that has followed me now all of these days at the first sight of a real enemy Your faith is going to turn to fear, and you are going to turn and run like scared little puppies with your tails tucked between your legs. Jesus said, because it's been written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. If you're with us, you remember how Peter responded to that, right? No way. Not me, Jesus. I'm sure with a loud voice and a lot of hand gestures and a whole lot of attitude, Peter protested everything Jesus had to say. Peter said, let me just tell you what's going to happen, Jesus. But Jesus again spoke, Peter, I tell you truly, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Once again, Peter's assessment of himself and Peter's assessment of the future as Jesus has laid it out differs from Jesus's assessment of Peter and what's going to take place this isn't new we've seen this happen with Peter before when Jesus had talked about what would happen to him when they got to Jerusalem Peter protested and Jesus said your your assessment is still wrong Peter but here this very night Peter he he won't let it go Peter said to Jesus, even though they all fall away, I won't. He said it emphatically, Mark said. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And we don't know why the rest of them joined in, but Mark said they all joined in. And he said they all said the same thing. That very night, Peter said, I I don't know about Matthew We know what he was like before he started following you. I can't speak to what's going to happen to him when it gets hard. I don't know about John, the the disciple of love. I don't know what's going to happen when it gets hard for him, if he's got the stomach for it. But as for me, Jesus, there's no way I'm going to leave you. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, the last couple of weeks, we've followed along this very evening after Jesus told them what was going to happen. And we know that Jesus' assessment of the disciples was right. When Jesus was betrayed by Judas in the garden, that very evening, facing the imminent threat of the crowd that had gathered, all, not just some, but all, verse 50 of Mark 14 said, fled the scene, including Peter. But there was something still stirring in Peter, even in that moment. 
Peter fled. He took off like everyone else. But there was something still stirring in Peter's heart. Something compelled Peter to not get too far away. Because as we saw last week in verse 54, Mark begins to to tell parallel stories of what's happening to Jesus and then what's actually happening to Peter. And we saw in verse 54 last week that Peter, he had followed Jesus at a distance as the guards and the crowd took Jesus to the house of the high priest to stand in an absolutely unjust trial. Peter had followed the crowd at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, verse 54 says, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Mark told us that then to let us know that it was happening at the same time as what we saw happening to Jesus last week. And so the story picks up this morning. Peter, somewhere between courage and cowardice, is below in the courtyard. And one of the servant girls of the high priest comes to Peter And seeing Peter warming himself, she looks at him and says, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. And that was Peter sitting there with himself going, I just hope someone's going to recognize me. I know I just ran and I shouldn't have run, and so I've followed back into the courtyard now, and here I am, maybe somebody by the firelight will see who I am and recognize me, and now I'll get a chance to redeem myself. Now I'll get a chance to be brave. Now I can prove my loyalty. Is that what was going on in Peter? Verse 68 says, when this girl approached Peter and said, you were with Jesus, the Nazarene, Peter denied it, saying, I neither neither know nor understand what you mean. Emphatic double there. I don't know and I don't understand. One commentator said it was a standoff. Peter, the rock, the strong-armed, grizzled fisherman, face-to-face with a servant girl. Surely not. Had Peter been confronted by Pontius Pilate and, and threatened with immediate execution, perhaps we might understand, though by no means excuse his failure. If it were Caiaphas, the high priest, or, or Annas, or the Roman soldier with a sword pressed perilously close to his throat... But a servant girl. Commentator went on to say that John Calvin was right, and he quoted John Calvin talking about this pastor, where he said, Here we see that it does not take a heavy fight to break a man, nor many forces and devices. Whoever is not dependent on God's hand will soon fall at a breath or at the noise of a falling leaf. Peter certainly was no less brave than any of us, and had already given no ordinary proof of his high courage, though his boldness was often excessive. Yet he does not wait to be brought to the tribunal of the pontiff or until the enemy threatens his violent death. But at the voice of a young woman, he's scared and straight out denies his master. And Mark records that with that denial, Peter went out into the gateway And the rooster crowed for the first time. Even physically, Mark just 
What a literary masterpiece. If you go just try to read it as a piece of literary work, Mark is even showing the distance that Peter is trying to create between himself and Jesus and being associated with Jesus, not just by his verbal denial, but now he's going to move further away from where he had been. He's going to get out by the gate from inside the courtyard. He's going to try to get further away, create some space. He's going to go out by the gateway. But verse 69 says, The servant girl saw him and began to say again to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, Peter denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. Verse 71 says that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, there's something very powerful happening here. Our, our Bible translators try to do us a service to help us understand what's possibly happening here. And I, by no means, and whenever we talk about what's actually written in the original languages and, and what we read in our Bible, by no means interpret us as being overly scholarly in this. I use Bible software to understand what was written in the first one and look at what's in our translations. But in the original language here, all it says is that Peter anathematized. He cursed. And in trying to understand what was actually happening there, our Bible translators have, have put in for us an, an understanding of that and saying that Peter invoked a curse upon himself. Here's the problem with that. The particular verb there in the Greek, it's not reflexive. A reflexive verb requires an object. It's not a reflexive verb to try to understand the confusion of just this verb and what Peter did. They try to translate it for us and, and help us to understand what happened, but it's not reflexive. But just think about it for a second. I mean, what is the ultimate way of finally creating distance and space and denial between a student and a rabbi or a student and a teacher? Is it not ultimately and publicly invoking a curse upon them? I don't know this man. And in this cursing, it's not reflexive. It's not Peter cursing upon himself. It's, it's Peter cursing his master, his teacher. And in the moment, if you read it, he can't even bring himself to even say Jesus' name. I don't know this man of whom you speak. Verse 72 says, immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Now, all four gospel writers record the crowing of the rooster just as Jesus said would happen. It's, it's an important part of the story. But Luke gives us a particular detail that's happening in this moment that I don't want us to actually look past and you can write this down and, and go look at it later this week. But in Luke chapter 22, Luke records that while Peter was leveling this harshest of denials, this ultimate creation of distance between himself and his rabbi, this denial of Jesus, it was as he was speaking this, Luke records, that the rooster crowed. And in verse 61, Luke actually says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
Jesus, throughout that night and that trial, was being moved from this area in the palace of the high priest where Annas was to the area where Caiaphas was, to the place where after before Caiaphas, he'll be taken ultimately to Pilate. He was being shuffled around the palace, and Peter was down in the courtyard. And in the providence of God, God orchestrated the paths of these two men to cross at this very moment. And when the rooster crowed, And Peter's voice had not yet completely dropped. And this most angry of denials has come from his mouth. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And he saw an angry, defensive, scared, defiant man. The question is, what did Peter see? We know what Jesus saw. What what did Peter see? Well, we know that he, he most likely saw blackened eyes, swollen jaw, bloodied nose, the remnants of the vile spit of the council and the guards probably still clinging to his beard. But the look, what was the look like? You know, there are all kinds of looks that we give people. You know this, right? You know, if you've ever played sports, there's a look that you give your competition directly when you're eye to eye with them across the field, right? You know when you've liked someone, those, those looks of flirtation that you can cast across a, a crowded room or across the hallway to get someone's attention, you can communicate a lot with a look. We even talk about looks that have the capacity to kill. You know the look of I told you so from someone. Maybe there's no scarier look that you can receive from someone or give someone other than the look of disappointment. You know what that looks like, don't you? But what look did Jesus give Peter? How did Jesus look at Peter? Better yet, file this away for yourself. How do you think Jesus looks at you when you fail him like this? When you deny him like this? Luke doesn't actually define the look for us. He doesn't actually tell us, but it was a look that had the capacity to pierce Peter's self-righteous, overly confident heart. It had to be a look that Peter had seen before. It had to be a look that he had recognized, probably a look that he saw Jesus give a leper at some point before he touched him. We'll look that he saw Jesus give to prostitutes and, and tax collectors when he invited them in and sat with them and ate with them and laughed with them. 
There was a look that he recognized that he gave to Peter that Peter saw and he knew in that moment and that look had the capacity to pierce everything that had hardened Peter's heart in that moment. It was a penetrating look of love that had come from Christ in that moment. And Mark says at that point, and Luke records it was when he looked at him and saw him, at that point Peter remembered how Jesus had already said before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down. He broke down and he wept. In that look, that penetrating look of love, Peter knew that Jesus was right about him. He knew that Jesus' assessment of himself was right. And in that moment, every ounce of Peter's self-confidence was gone. It was in that moment that Peter realized he was really capable of the darkest things. It was in that moment that Peter realized he really was capable of doing the very thing that he had just done. These, These are no ordinary tears. I don't know if you've ever cried the tears of actually facing the reality of just how dark your heart really is and just what you're really capable of. These are tears that threaten to drown you. If you've ever imagined being just a couple inches below the surface of the water and not being able to get up, these are tears that threaten to drown you. When you come face to face with exactly what you're actually capable of. And the moment Peter knew it, he faced it, and it broke him. Everything that he had believed about himself, everything that he had believed about his ability and his strength, in this moment, it was undone. Now, here's where we need to talk, right? Like permission to to speak freely. You, You and I have more in common with Peter than we may ever want to actually admit. Peter has not been living with an accurate perception of who he really is and what he's really capable of. Just how dark his heart really is. He didn't simply disagree with Jesus' assessment of him this very night and what was going to happen. We've seen that being a pattern in Peter's life all along. The minute Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, where he'll be handed over, where he'll suffer, where he'll die, Peter says, no way. You're, You're wrong, Jesus. You're going to fall away. No, you're wrong, Jesus. This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to actually deny me. No, you're wrong, Jesus. And in carrying an an inaccurate perception of who he really is, in disagreeing with Jesus' assessment of reality and his own heart, Peter is implicitly calling Jesus a liar. And he's walking around in the blindness of his own pride. And the reality of it is, if we're not careful... If we're not willing, we'll read this story, we'll we'll listen to this story, and we'll allow ourselves to think in the quietness of our own mind 
I think I would have stopped when I heard the first rooster. How did he actually forget? I mean, it was just a matter of hours, maybe, before this that Jesus told them this is what was going to happen. When he heard the first rooster, how did he not remember what he said and then keep going? I mean, if I, if I had a rooster, I don't think it would have taken two crows for me to remember. You see, the Bible gives a particular assessment of who we really are. The Bible says that we are all sinners, self-centered like Peter, cowardly like Peter. And the reality of it is, when we hear the Bible's assessment of who we really are, do we laugh it off? Do we take it seriously? If we're not careful, we'll read this story and, and hear it for someone else, assuming that we'd respond differently than Peter did. But the, but the reality of it is, we would not have, and we don't now. Because like Peter, we walk around with an inaccurate perception of who we really are and what we're capable of. And like Peter, we're guilty of denying Jesus. Peter's not the only one guilty of doing this. Ultimately, what was Peter doing? He was trying to create distance between himself and his association with Jesus. That's what denying Jesus in this moment looks like. We're never guilty of doing that, are we? You're never guilty of trying to distance yourself between being associated with Jesus or being associated with his followers, are you? We try to create this kind of distance in so many varied ways. This is where the conversation this week about the text, it took such a great turn. And we had so many ways that we all individually deny Jesus like this, that it would take, again, four sermons to get through them, but, but some of us, some of us explicitly deny Jesus like Peter. You might finally land that, that cool job that you've wanted to get, got around the, the people that you've always wanted to be around. You got the, the invite to the, to the it neighbor's party, and you finally get to go. And the talk of the foolishness of religion comes up. The silliness of Christianity. And lo and behold, before you realize it, you've joined right in. I mean, it's better to deny Jesus in that moment than to be denied by your peers and your friends, right? So many ways we do it. We, we do it not even by saying explicit things like Peter to deny our association with Jesus or his followers. We, we do it with silence too. Again, when we face pressure, when we face a association, we would rather face the, the displeasure of denying Jesus than the displeasure of our friends, our peers. And when the opportunity comes for us to speak, we distance ourselves from association with Jesus or even his followers simply by remaining silent. It doesn't take explicit words to do this. 
One thing that came up in our discussion, and, and I think it was Ray that was talking about this, is, is one of the ways we, we deny Jesus, in essence, the same way that Peter has by separating distance, creating distance between us and Jesus and association, is that by doing something, actually behaving in a particular way, that would communicate to those around us that we're not actually one of them. You see, Peter didn't simply deny association with Jesus. Remember what they said? They said, you're one of them. Peter had to deny association with Jesus' followers. And there are times in our lives when we might be tempted to behave in a certain way around people that would implicitly create distance in their minds between us and them. Those Jesus people. Those Christians. Whatever it is we do, in whatever manner we find our own hearts condemned as guilty of denying Jesus, and whatever the instance, we're trying to actually preserve something. In this moment, Peter was trying to preserve his life. He feared death. He feared the consequences of being associated with Jesus in that moment. In that moment, he loved his own life more than Christ. And for us, we we may never face that reality. Some of us may never face the reality that association with Jesus or his followers may cost us the very breath that we breathe. More often than not, it would cost us our reputation in the eyes of others. It may cost us a particular job advancement. It may cost us our reputation. It may cost us some measure of comfort. This is the beauty of the the season of Lent. We get a particular time, a focused time, a reminder to look at the things in our own hearts that have captured our affections and have drawn our satisfaction away from who God is for us in Jesus. And you have an opportunity with Peter here to ask yourself, what have you been willing to deny Jesus to preserve? What do you love and value so much in your life that you're willing to deny Jesus to preserve it, to keep it? Is it your own life? Is it your reputation? Is it your job? Is it your comfort? Whatever it is. What are you willing to deny Jesus in order to actually preserve? See, like Peter, you and I live with a distorted perception of who we really are. And in our hearts, there's a a stubborn refusal to actually believe that we're capable of even the darkest of sins. And like Peter, you and I, in our pride and our blindness, are led to deny Jesus, to distance ourselves from him and from association with him when something that our heart loves more is threatened. The last bit of the conversation on Thursday Thursday revolved around this, this question. Do I just leave you there? It's Lent after all. What is it that your heart has gripped so tightly to that you're willing to deny Jesus in order to preserve. See you next week.
I know in, in, in Narnia, it was always winter, never Christmas. So this is always Lent and never Easter. Do I just leave you in that? Allow you to deal with that and let the Holy Spirit deal with you in that? I, I can't do that. I'm very tempted to do it. I, I, I can't do it. Have you, have you ever read this story or, or heard this story or, or given any thought to this story and ever wondered why Peter, when he breaks down and weeps right there, wasn't arrested? I mean, the story moves on really quick. Have you ever thought for a moment, though, wait a minute, the, the jig's up. He, he's been exposed. Why is Peter not arrested? Why didn't the guards, guards grab him? Why didn't they begin to mock him? Why didn't they begin to beat him? Why didn't they begin to spit in Peter's face? Why was Peter not grabbed and taken captive? Peter wasn't grabbed by the guards and taken captive and beaten and mocked and spit upon because the guards had already received Jesus. When Peter deserved to be arrested, threatened, beaten, mocked, struck, in his place, Jesus was. The guards didn't take Peter because they had already taken Jesus. The judgment that Peter deserves for his denial of Jesus actually fell upon Jesus himself. Jesus was going to be taken away. He was going to be found guilty before Pilate and he was going to be led to the cross where he would die for Peter. And while Peter was standing there refusing to be identified with Jesus, Jesus was willingly identifying himself with Peter and willingly identifying himself with us. In a matter of hours from this moment, Jesus would be condemned in Peter's place. Though he never sinned, the just wrath of God for Peter's sin, for my sin, for your sin, for our denials of Jesus, for our rejections of Jesus, the just wrath of God would be poured out on Jesus' body while he hung on a cross. And while we do anything necessary at times to create distance between ourselves and Jesus to preserve our reputation, to preserve our status, to preserve our way of life, Jesus moves towards us in love. And he receives the punishment that we deserve for our sins in our place. Beginning to understand this begins to transform the way that you and I can actually respond to moments like the one Peter has just had when we realize who we really are and what we're really capable of. You see, someone else had a moment very similar to Peter's in the story. It wasn't exactly the same, but it was very similar. In Matthew chapter 27, you don't actually have to go there. I'll, I'll, I'll go there for you if I can get there quickly. Matthew chapter 27, we read of another moment very similar to this, and it was actually Judas's. Matthew chapter 7, listen to this. When Judas, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind 
And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what, what, is it, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, Judas departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. He changed his mind. When he saw Jesus condemned, he regretted what he had done. No doubt Judas felt an immense amount of guilt. No doubt in that moment Judas felt an immense amount of regret and, and condemnation. Maybe even in that moment when he left the temple after throwing the money back in, maybe he found himself weeping just like Peter. But that's it for Judas. That's all he does. In, in taking the money back to the temple and in throwing it back to the temple, Judas reveals that he actually thought that he could undo what his sin had set in motion. Judas thought that by going back and giving the money back after seeing Jesus condemned, that maybe they would change their mind. Maybe they would release Jesus. Maybe the pressure of his own guilt and regret could be relieved. Judas thought that he could fix it. In an effort at making some level of restitution for what he, did, what he had done, he figured, I got myself into this. I can get myself out. Friends, this is a, a powerful picture of the way a sinful heart works. It's a powerful picture of the temptation that you and I have to think that we can achieve our own salvation, our own forgiveness before God by our own effort, by our own undoing of what our sin has done. By thinking that we could work hard enough or, or do the right things, then we could be forgiven. Trusting in our own efforts rather than in the work of Jesus. Judas never went to Jesus. He thought he could fix it. He never asked for forgiveness. And in the end, as you read, he was eaten up by despair, by regret, by guilt. And then there's Peter. Then there's Peter. The first time that Peter sees Jesus after he was raised from the dead is in John chapter 21. And Peter sees Jesus here this morning in this story across a courtyard. He locks eyes with him and he gets a look from Jesus that he knows exactly what it means and it pierces the self-righteousness in Peter's heart and he's broken by it and he's weeping full of regret, full of guilt, full of condemnation. He leaves the, the cross and he leaves the tomb completely confused, completely overwhelmed, fully aware of who he is and, and what he's done. And the first time he sees the resurrected Jesus is in John chapter 21. I, I want you to, to hear this. I want you to see the way in which we can respond to these moments if we understand exactly what was going on and what Jesus was doing. John chapter 21, you can write this down. Starting in verse three. Simon Peter said to the other disciples who were with him, I'm gonna go fishing. And they said to Peter, we'll go with you. And they went out and they got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And so they cast the net and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved 
said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples, they came in in the boat, dragging a net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, only about a hundred yards off. Peter, in seeing Jesus, he cast everything aside. His response expresses the reality of his awareness of his utter need for Jesus. Jesus, I can't do it on my own. Jesus, I just denied you three times. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I can't even catch fish on my own. My friends won't even let me go out by myself. I'm sitting here on this fishing boat because I have no idea what else I'm supposed to be doing with my life. I need you. And in seeing Jesus and in knowing that, nothing else mattered to Peter. His shame didn't get in the way. His guilt didn't get in the way. The thoughts of those around him didn't get in the way. All that mattered was his need for Jesus. That was Peter's number one priority. After that scene, you can go and read it, Jesus gives Peter the chance to affirm his love for him the same number of times that he had denied it. Oh, there's great mercy in this. There's great mercy and great grace that Jesus deliberately shows Peter and deliberately records for all of us in his word. Peter got it wrong more times than he got it right. And yet, God uses Peter to advance his gospel to shepherd his people. Most historians believe that Mark's gospel account comes from Peter's record of the events of the life and ministry of Jesus. What would make a man want to make sure that the story we read this morning gets recorded? The the shameful story of denying Jesus three times in the presence of pressure You see, we can be honest about this kind of stuff when we become convinced about God's grace. Peter had become so convinced about God's grace, it wasn't his reputation that mattered anymore, it was the reputation of Jesus. And because he was so convinced about God's grace, he could be so honest about his own sin. What do do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your tears? Do you try to make up for them like Judas? Or are you willing to throw yourself over the side of the boat because you're convinced of your utter need for Jesus? Listen, this morning Jesus would invite every single person in this room to come to him. On this very same night that Peter denies Jesus in the courtyard, this very same night that Judas betrayed Jesus, this very same night that Jesus' own countrymen, the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of God's people condemned him falsely, Jesus took the, the bread of the Passover meal and he said, this is my body, broken for you. He took the cup of the Passover meal and he he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That very night when Peter would have nothing to do with Jesus, Jesus would go to the cross fully identifying with Peter, with you, with me. 
on the cross, God would make him who knew no sin to become sin. So that anyone who by faith believes in Jesus as their substitute and as their savior, they would receive the righteousness of God. Full and complete forgiveness. The standing before and with God that only Jesus deserved. This morning, God gives all of us the chance to respond to his word this morning. In just a moment, we're going to receive communion together. And as we receive communion together, it's a moment to not just remember, but to celebrate and to physically respond to the grace that God has shown us through his son, Jesus. This morning, are, are you willing to jump over the side of the boat regardless of whatever else is going on around you? Is your need for Jesus great enough for you to cast yourself over the side and come to him? Let me pray for us this morning and then we'll respond. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that it doesn't glorify us in our sin, but it leads us to marvel at your grace and mercy. Oh, this morning, that's what we need to do. We need to be able to marvel at your grace that takes sinners like Peter and sinners like me and sinners like the rest of us in here and doesn't simply just forgive as though that isn't enough, but it forgives and then graciously uses us to see the good news of your mercy spread from heart to heart to heart. Well, thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to respond. I ask that you would remove any obstacle that our hearts and our minds are trying to throw up in front of us as we have a chance to come to you and express our need for you. We ask that you would remove those things, free us by grace through faith to come to you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.